You can be open your Bibles to Genesis 20 this morning. Thank y'all for doing that uh, 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 with us. Uh, Pastor Andy read out of Isaiah 6, and just a, a, a quick note on that, those angels had six wings, and we know they're Baptist angels because, uh, or they're not Baptist angels, I should say, because they weren't using all six uh, wings to fly. A Baptist is going to be busy and active, and that's not always a good thing. Uh, they're using two for humility, two for service, and two to fly with. And if you go all the way to Revelation, which is written many centuries later, they're still doing the same thing in chapter 4. And guess what? They're still doing it today. That God made a being that doesn't need to stop, rest, eat. They're just there to praise God every day. I'm glad y'all are here today. Uh, we're looking at chapter 20 of Genesis. Um, and, and the past couple of chapters we went through, it, it was kind of, um, there wasn't a lot of extra in it. In other words, it was kind of a basic point in each one. This one, I could turn this into five Bible studies. There's so many principles and ideas and things coming out of this story that that I can't do it justice in one sermon so I will suggest a lot of those ideas at least during the sermon I believe I hope I pray I'm never quite sure I don't script so I'm not exactly sure what'll come out of my mouth but I got a good idea and uh, I hope that some of those will pique your interest and you'll do further study I know you just sat down so I'm going to help you exercise by getting back up and uh, we're going to read this chapter out loud so that as I reference it um, you'll kind of have an idea already. It's only 18 verses, so it's very convenient to do so. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, took, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she's a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return to her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kinsmen a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. But they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. 
dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female servant, slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord God, uh, as we step into your throne room in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you are high and, and lifted up, that your train fills the temple there in heaven, that you're seated in that holy place and at your right hand, Lord Jesus, are you seated beside the Father and between you, the river of life, the Holy Spirit flows out and flows down to us and fills this church, fills the, the people of this church, uh, of this local assembly, but fills the all the people of the church around the world with the power from on high. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've come to us to lead us in truth and in righteousness and, judge, and judgment to come. And that, Lord, you won this for us on the cross. Father, we thank you for your plan, that you loved the world so much that you gave Christ to us to die in our place. And Lord, we pray this day that we would honor you with the words of our mouth, the meditation of our heart, that you would open all of our understanding to behold the wonderful things in your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you're being seated, I, I call this today grace again. There should have been some alarms going off in your head while I was reading that passage. Because haven't we already been here once? Abraham's already done this. I mean, we, we covered that before. And, and after that first time, it seems like he learned a lesson. He began to fear God more and to do the right thing. But as you've already seen as I read it, later on he's going to make an excuse of why he did this. He doesn't even uh, own up to it uh, very well. But I, but I want you to see that, that God gives grace. I, I don't know about you, but I hate to mess up. I mean, if, if I know I've messed up, if I get caught, uh, and by that I just mean like I'm supposed to do something and I didn't do it or whatever, and I know I'm in, in the wrong and in error, man, that bugs me. It bugs me to no end. I... I just, I struggle with that so much. And, and, and maybe you feel the same way. I'm sure, I'm sure most of you do. I don't think anybody's real flippant about uh, ever messing anything up. I'm not talking about gross sin, just, just messing up. But I do know why we feel guilty when we mess up. Because you are guilty. But we try to deal with the feeling instead of the guilt. And that's the problem. That's why we continue to feel that way. Because we don't understand. We don't, we don't under, uh, uh, come to God in a way to, to get rid of the actual guilt. And so we still uh, live in that feeling of guilt. And, uh, and so in this text, we see something that really blows me away. And, and I'm, this is what we're going to talk about throughout, but mainly at the end. That God's grace is so great that we cannot fathom it. When you're a little kid and your mom or dad told you not to do something, you do it and then you try to hide from them, you might feel shame, you might feel fear. And, and, and it seems to me that people never grow up, they just get older and bigger. Have you ever noticed that? And, and so sometimes when we mess up and we know that we have disappointed God in, in our way of saying that, that we're afraid to talk to him. We're afraid to go to him. And that's the absolute worst thing you can do. In other words, we ought to go to God when we have messed up. When we, when we need that grace. Grace is getting something you didn't deserve in a positive way. 
Mercy is not getting something you did deserve in a negative way. In other words, when you mess up, you deserve punishment. And mercy says, no, I won't do that. I will give mercy instead of punishment. Grace, you don't deserve eternal life. You don't deserve to know God. And yet God gives you that gift, that grace, and saves you for eternity. And so those two things are always working together in the believer's life and in the life of all who will come to Christ and, and receive that to themselves. Now, one of the pitfalls, and when we're going to talk about this later, and let me go ahead and address it a little bit, and that is there's some people who say, oh, good, I can just sin because God's going to forgive me. But the Bible makes a strong point that that's not so. And I'll talk about more about that later. But in this chapter, it blows my mind that Abraham, throughout this whole chapter, is the guy that messes it all up, and God rescues them anyway. I can't comprehend that. I mean, you knew better. You're not supposed to do that. It, 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 again, if you sin and you knew you weren't supposed to, I'm a believer, and you start saying, how could I have possibly done that? I'm, what? I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be a Christian. How could I have done that? And, and that is an honest feeling we have. Why do we go back to that? So we're, we're going to look at that a little bit today. Here's what I want you to take home with you today. Don't be afraid to come to God again. Do not be afraid to come to God again. Jesus told a couple of parables to help us get a hold of this. One of them, there was a widow and, and there was an injustice done to her and she went to an unrighteous judge, an evil judge, and she appealed and he refused her and refused her and refused her, but she wouldn't shut up. <laughs> she wouldn't stop. And the Bible, and Jesus told the story, he said that judge finally gave her justice, not because he was a good judge, but because she wore him out. He was just tired of hearing her, so he gave her what she needed. He said, how much more your father who loves you, won't he give good gifts to his children? That you don't have to beg him, you don't have to wear him out. You got to talk to him, you got to know him. He told another story, and, he, and at the beginning, the Bible makes this commentary. And Jesus told him a parable so that they would always pray and not faint. And some versions say, or lose heart. Faint is the old uh, King James word, if you still use the authorized version. But you wouldn't lose heart. You wouldn't give up. And, and then he tells a story about a man who at midnight, a knock comes on the door, and a friend of his arrives at his house at midnight. Now, in the Middle East, even today, get up in the morning, you make your bread, or you go buy the bread that was made that morning. You don't go get a loaf of preservatives. You get bread, and by tomorrow, that bread's not going to be any good. So by the end of the day, that bread's pretty much gone. It's eaten or fed some birds or something, but it's, it's gone. So at midnight, it's, no, it's not unusual he wouldn't have bread, but he knew a guy that would have bread. So he leaves his house, goes to his friend's house, knocks on the door, said, hey, get up. I've had a, a friend come to visit me at midnight, and I don't have any bread. And the guy said, go away. <laughs> I'm in bed with my kids. I, you know, I, I, we're all asleep. Leave me alone. But he knocks again. He knocks, and finally the guy gets, okay, okay, okay. Quit knocking on the door. Here, here's some bread. And so what we learned from that story is, number one, don't quit asking. Number two, don't be afraid to go to God, even in bad circumstances. There's never a bad time to talk to God. But we're kind of left hanging. And somebody asked this question once. And, and, and what I believe the answer is, I think, will be helpful. And here's the question. What happens if that happens again tonight? What happens if another friend comes at midnight? Do I go back to my buddy who gave me bread the night before and go, uh, hey, hate to bother you two nights in a row, but 
It happened again. I got another friend showed up, and I don't have any bread. Now, the guy inside, I would think, would say, don't you ever learn your lesson, <laughs> you know? Well, the, the real answer is, yeah, that's what you do. That's the point Jesus made in that parable. He said, so keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. God wants us to return to him again and again to that throne of grace. In Hebrews, it says we go boldly to the throne of grace and receive help in a time of need. And so, God wants us to do that. Well, as we come into this chapter, the first two verses, we go, what? What are you doing again? In those first two verses, Abraham is journeying. He's left the, the Oaks of Mamre. He's walking around again. And he goes into this area. And let me just sum it up. This is a Philistine king. He's a Philistine. And we always think of them as the bad guys, right? That may not be necessarily so. There are mighty people. There are warrior people. They could, they could make iron tools. And the Jews could not. As we see later on. So the only suits of armor in the days of David. And, and uh, King Saul and King David. Were, there were only two suits of armor. Because they, they were the guys that did all the tool making. And so they had to go to the Philistines to get their stuff. So they're not going to sell weapons to what they consider their enemies. So this is a Philistine king. Abimelech is. And so as Abraham's uh, journeying in their area. He says about Sarah. She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, you, you got to kind of understand marriage in that day. Um, and and, and it's, it, it, this is what I mean. Uh, obviously, we read in the Old Testament that men had multiple wives. By the way, the Bible never says that's okay. The Bible just tells us what is, and then you have to see what God says. And we know whether the hero was doing a good thing or a bad thing. So God never okays multiple wives. If you're Mormon, I'm sorry, or those who are fundamentalist Mormons, uh, that's, uh, God never said do that. In fact, he, he doesn't like that. And secondly, in that day, a wife is not necessarily a wife like we think of it, especially when you've got multiple wives. If you've got one wife, that's your wife. That's pretty plain. But we know that like Solomon had, what, 300 wives and 600 concubines? Those concubines are counted as wives. They just don't have as many rights and authority as the real wife. Okay? You follow me? So, you get a woman and you say, you're going to be my wife, very simply. And you consummate that relationship and voila, she's your wife. That's what's going on here. Abraham says, that's my sister. Now, I want to point out something. Sarah is 90. Nine followed by zero. She is 9T, 9-0. And he goes, cool, that's your sister. I think I'll marry her. Now, it could have been a thing of convenience. They want to make, he wants, this rich guy comes in with all these people, all, this, all these possessions, comes into his land. He goes, I need to make friends with that guy. And who's that? Oh, that's my sister. Okay, send her to me. And Abraham does. Now, here's the weird thing. Why would Abraham do that? Well, he'll tell you why later on, and it's quite fascinating. Let me save that for a little bit later. Look at verse 3. Abimelech is restrained by God. Here is this king that does not recognize Jehovah or Yahweh or the God of Abraham, and, and God restrains him. Now, the reason why, I'll tell you a lot later as well. But in verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man. 
Now, I like to stop there. I know the sentence doesn't stop there. But it's a lot more dramatic if you stop right there. How would you like to say, hey, send Sarah on up to me. Go get her. And brings her in. And you go to sleep that night. And this guy is lucid dreaming. He has a conversation with God in his sleep. I don't, I don't know what that means. I just know that something's going on here that's beyond the normal. And God says, hey, Abimelech, you're a dead man because of that woman. That because you've taken another man's wife. You're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken. For she is a man's wife. So right there tells you what God thinks about doing such as that. We use different terms today. But God says you're a dead man for that. I'll let that sink in. And here's Abimelech's response. Now Abimelech had not approached her. Verse 4. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Didn't he say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said he's my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Let me pause there for a second. You, you, you've already heard what's coming next. There's this one thing, part of this that I, I noticed. And I kind of told myself I'm not even going to bring it up because it would be too easy to be misunderstood. Somebody will misapply it. Somebody will, you know. But 1 Peter 3 says that Sarah obeyed Abraham Calling him Lord. He said there, she said he's my brother. She joined him in the lie. Abraham asked her to do that. It was a half truth. She was his sister. But she was also his wife. But a half truth is a whole lie. It's always wrong to deceive. And what I want to point out about that, because here's where you might misunderstand what I'm saying. You might say, well, is a woman supposed to sin if her husband asks her to sin? No, not at all. I, wouldn't, I would never say that. That's crazy. Don't even, I can't imagine you thinking that, but I know people do because somebody's going to call me this week and go, you know what you said? You just said a woman could. No, I did not say that. You weren't listening. I, even me making a point of it, somebody's going to call me and go, I can't believe you said that. So I almost didn't do it, but I want to point that out because I want to show you something else. Abraham's held accountable for it, not her. I'll let that sink in. Guys, we got to lead our wives in the right way. So, verse 6. And God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you've done this in the integrity of your heart. God wants to get his attention, and I think... You are worshiping a pagan god or gods. And all of a sudden, the real god shows up in a dream and goes, you're a dead man because you took another man's wife. He's like, what? what? Me? I didn't do that. That dude told me that was his sister. And God goes, I know. I know that you, in the integrity of your heart, you didn't go take another man's wife. You thought she was available. He says, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Notice who the sin would have been against. Sarah, Abraham, God said, that's against me. Because that's not my order. That's not how I do things. This isn't allowable. For those who say it's okay, he, God said, I don't allow this. This is not good. And so I kept you from sinning. That's going to be real important. Because I want to show you later why God kept them from sinning. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. 
So in other words, she never became Abimelech's so-called wife. Probably been more like a concubine. But therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. What? He goes on to say, and he'll pray for you, and you shall live. But if you don't return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. The only thing Abimelech knows about Abraham and Sarah is they are liars. Isn't that crazy? And God says to him in a dream, that's my prophet. If I'm God, I'm going, I don't want that guy to know that I know Abraham. The Bible says God's not ashamed to be called our God. I want you to get the vastness of God's grace and mercy. He says to Abimelech, that's my dude. Listen, I know I need the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit not to sin and to walk in integrity before God and don't always lean on his power to do that. But there's another controlling factor in my life. I can be almost anywhere in the nation, it seems, and I'm using hyperbole there, not really, but it is odd to me the places I go sometimes and all of a sudden I'll hear this voice across the room go Pastor Stewart and I don't even know him they might have visited the church they might have come to a wedding or a funeral or they saw something online and people are watching they're watching and if people know you're a Christian I promise you they're watching they're seeing how you handle life but it blows my mind that God would admit to Abimelech, that's my prophet. That's my boy right there. I mean, I love Abraham. The only thing Abimelech knows is he has surrendered his wife out there to, to someone else. And he's a liar. And God says, that's my prophet. And I'm going to ask him to pray for you so you don't get killed. Lord, aren't you on the wrong side of this? Why are you taking up for Abraham? Shouldn't you be taking up for Abimelech? Well, in a sense, God is. He's not killing him. He's giving him a chance to do the right thing. But I would just think God would be all over Abraham. I'm going to come back around to that a little bit more too. So verse 8. And here we see Abimelech confronting Abraham beginning here through verse 16. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. I think that's an important point because of what Abraham's going to say later. All the household, all the servants of this king are afraid of God. They didn't even know who God was the day before. Now they know God and they're afraid of him. And Abimelech calls Abraham. And by the way, what I mean by that is, you know, you, you don't have to defend God. He can defend himself. I mean, we ought to defend God. I'm not saying not to, but I'm just saying... God can handle it. And God does in such a way that gets Abimelech's attention. And so, look at verse 9. And this, this could just translate, the words of this can just translate in today's world. Then Abimelech calls Abraham and says, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done things ought not be done. The prophet is getting preached to by a pagan. You've done stuff you ought not do, man. What did I do to you? Did you do this to me? Why why'd you bring this on me? What, what have I ever done to you that you'd get your God to kill me? The, the, the understanding of Abimelech is amazing to me. And the, 
What Abraham does is made even more awful by this. And so, look at verse 10. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did such a thing? That you did this thing. And verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she's my sister. The daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, she became my wife. Abraham claims, I did it because you don't fear God. Here's something I've noticed about human nature. Nine times out of ten, if somebody's really upset or they're blaming somebody for something, it's because they're guilty of it. Abraham here is guilty of not having no fear of God before his eyes. Because wouldn't it have been better for Abraham to be killed so they could take Sarah than to sin against God in such a awful way? Of course it would. And Abimelech should have been, I mean, Abraham should have been man enough to stand up and say, that's my wife, don't touch her. Sure, man, no problem. Got anybody else? I'd like to make an alliance with you. You got a single girl I could take and be my wife? And that might have happened, I don't know. But instead, Abraham fears men more than he fears God. And then says, Abimelech, I just thought you didn't fear God. And besides, you know, it's only half a lie. She is my sister. He's shifting the blame. He doesn't man up and say, yeah, I blew it. I'm so sorry. Here's the circumstances, but I really messed it up. He just kind of shifts the blame, blames Abimelech for his mess up, and then says, I didn't really lie. And then verse 13, and when God called me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he's my brother. So Abraham admits, I asked her to do it. She's only doing what I asked her to do. And so Abimelech confronts Abraham, and Abraham does fess up finally to what happened. And then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, verse 14, and male servants, female servants, and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it ple- where it pleases you. Now, when Abraham did this in Egypt, the Egyptian king said, Get out of here. I don't want people like you in my country. Abimelech says, Pick a spot. You can live here. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And verse 16, to Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a little dig there at Abraham. Uh, You said he was your brother. I'm going to go with that, even though he's your husband. A thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Abimelech wants to make it real clear, maybe for some self-preservation, but I want to show you God's got a different reason. He, for his own vindication, I've given a thousand pieces of silver to your brother to say, I didn't touch her, here's some money, we are good, man. We don't, I didn't mess with her. So Abimelech's got this motivation to make it clear that he didn't touch her and she is not touched by any man in his household. What's God's motivation? Peek into chapter 21. She's about to be found with child named Isaac. And God don't want there to be any question about whose baby that is. And so God protects her from the reputation 
God didn't do that for Mary. When Jesus was a grown man, the Pharisees said, well, we know who our daddy is. We don't know who your daddy is. And yet Mary said, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. Knowing that she would always be doubted, knowing that Joseph accepted the responsibility, knowing he would always be looked upon. You took a woman who's carrying somebody else's baby, and if Joseph said, yeah, but that baby was God's baby, they're going to go, you are crazy, dude. And they had to live out their life bearing that shame because Christ came to take all our shame on him, right? But back here with Isaac, God wants to make it clear. No, this line's coming from Abraham. This is the line that's going to bring us Jesus. And he wants it very clear, and he tells this story Show number one, even God's people mess up. But I want to come back around to something I said earlier. And that, that is this. God shows grace to Abraham. And here's a misunderstanding people can get. Oh, that means I can do whatever I want and God will forgive me. Well, let, I won't deny that. But let me, let me explain something. It, it, here's, here's a man who is sinning. This man's a Christian and this man's not a Christian. And they're both doing the same sin. How can you tell by their actions which one is a Christian? You can't. So, let me take care of the sinning lost man first. So this lost man, I tell him about Christ. He could accept or reject it, right? I don't, I don't know what he's going to do. He's lost. So if God wants him saved, he's going to bring him in. Or the guy's going to reject God's offer and not be saved. But over here, I got this Christian guy. And that's where I want to spend time. Because I believe most people listening to me right now are Christians. But this may help you even if you're lost. Here's a Christian man sinning. And God comes and says, you can't do that. This is a sin. The Christian has two options. Hear that and repent and get right with God. Or refuse the grace of God to quit sinning. If you refuse the grace of God to quit sinning and you are a Christian. See, I'm going to tell you, according to the Bible, you don't have any confidence that you're a Christian. And here's the misunderstanding people get. They said to Paul, or Paul said, you say to me, oh, let me sin the more that more grace would abound. And Paul comes that close to cursing to say, no way. The Greek words are meganoida. It's may it never be. Do you do not sin intentionally just so the grace of God will come? You don't do that because to be saved in this morning's Sunday school in 1 John 3, 9, the man who knows God does not keep on sinning. And Galatians 5, the man who is engaged over and over and over in sin, it says those who do these things and things like them shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So when I talk to this guy who claims to be a Christian and I have to deal with him about a sin, I say to him, here's what God's word says about what you're doing. I better do that. Not my opinion, because people might think I'm sinning because I'm not wearing a tie today or something. Or because I got red hair, like that's my fault. I don't, I don't know. You know, people have weird ideas. But when I can show you in God's word, that's a sin. And that guy... What I got to say to him is, by your actions, you look lost. So I want to know, are you saved or are you lost? Well, I'm saved. Well, then you better repent. Why do I say that? 
Because the Bible says in Romans 12 that the goodness of God brings us to repentance. And God's granted you grace. He didn't care. Listen, in my opinion, I don't know why God hadn't killed me yet. I don't know if you feel that way, but you ought to. The moment we sin, we are an affront to God. It is by his mercy and grace we're not destroyed. He has given us grace so that we can come to him. And we ought to take advantage of that. But then there's something else. The Bible says in Proverbs 29, a man who is often reproved, that is, you're told over and over and over again not to do that. Y'all remember that little red truck in that cartoon movie? What did we tell you? To not to? Yeah, exactly. You're told over and over and over to not to and you keep doing it? The Bible says we'll suddenly be cut off and that without remedy. Say, well, that's Old Testament. Okay, let me give you New Testament. 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 5. There's a, there's a sin in the church like the pagans don't do. And Paul said, the guy who's doing that, he won't, he's not repenting. Turn his body, his flesh over to the devil or turn him over to the devil for the destruction of his flesh that his soul will be saved. In other words, an unrepentant Christian, you are in constant danger. God's just going to kill you. Because as an unrepentant Christian, you're looking at the, the world's looking at you going, well, he acts like us. And God expects more out of his people. He expected more out of Abraham. But look at the grace of God in the last two verses. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord has closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. I don't understand that verse. Don't understand it at all, because in my mind, this wasn't that long of a time period. How do they know nobody is able to get pregnant? So it may have, she may have been there a lot longer, but, he, but here's what, uh, something maybe you missed I want you to catch. The blessing of God is children. That's the blessing. That's a blessing. It is a blessing. And in this passage, in this circumstance, I'm not saying if a woman has trouble getting pregnant that there's some sin, but what I am saying is that when God allows us to have children, that is a blessing from God. We, we are headed on September 22nd to starting the 40 days for life. There's a display in the, in the gym, and there's people here. You can sign up to pray. You can sign up to go down to the Planned Parenthood and pray. You can sign up to pray for those who are going to be down there praying. So I invite you to do that. I don't know if they'll be there after this service, but they're here before this service, so come back next week and sign up to do that. Because children are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord. And we ought to be praying that God will help us in all kinds of ways. We need to help those moms that want to keep their children, and maybe they can't take care of them, and, and they want to adopt them out. We ought to be willing to adopt them. We ought to be willing to, to help pay bills to help them get to that point. We can't just be against uh, abortion and not be for life. Amen? So there's a lot in this chapter. But it blows me away. Abraham, the, the bad guy in this chapter is Abraham, not Abimelech. And yet God works through Abraham. And so the encouragement to you is this, man, if you messed up, go to God. Run to God. For he has 
grace beyond measure that you can imagine that he will take and give to you and bring you out of sin. We have to repent of our sin. We have to turn away from our sin and not want to do that. But we need the grace of God not to do that. We need to go to God so that he can bring us to that point of repentance and forgiveness. And if you're living a consistently sinful lifestyle, you better check it. Are you in the faith? Because that's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start with me. Am I, are you even saved? Because you won't repent. And a man who knows God does, does not want to continue to sin. And if you're just living in it, why? You need to repent. You're in danger. Because God don't play. You say, well, that's Old Testament. Ephesians says the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Don't tell me it's just Old Testament. It's New Testament too. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It says in Hebrews, that's New Testament. And so we better make ourselves holy. Here's three things you can do this week. First, do not Do not lie. <laughs> That was the first sin in that chapter, right? Abraham did a lot of them in this, but don't lie. Just be truthful. Be honest. I had a man between services tell me that when he was a young man, he was working in this place, and there were three guys, and they were always, always giving him kind of a hard time. He's a much older man now. This was many years ago. And he said, so he decided he was going to tell them this lie. That I don't remember exactly the circumstances, but he so he lied to him, and the guy knew he was lying. He said, son, let me tell you something. You're not smart enough to lie. You better always tell the truth. <laughs> None of us are smart enough to lie. You may fool somebody sometime, but you will never fool God. So don't lie. Secondly, live boldly for God, because somebody's watching. Somebody is watching you, so live boldly for God. Be aware that God's watching. If nobody else is watching you, God's watching you. So live boldly for him. And then thirdly, Trust God even when you've blown it. Friend, I, I, I've been kind of harsh because I want to get your attention. But don't miss the point. Trust God even when you've messed up. God is at work in your life because his will will be done no matter how hard you try to mess it up. He's going to have his way. So you can do it the easy way or the hard way. You can go with him or you can let him make you go with him. So go with him, because that's a lot easier. Return to God. When you realize, man, I've blown it, run to God. He loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants you to know that if you abide in him, that he will help you, that you'll bear much fruit. In John 15, we read all about that. That if we will stay close to God, he will fill us with what we need to do his work. Grace again? Yes. Grace again. It's always available if we'll repent. Lord, we love you. We thank you. You're an awesome God. Lord, those of us who claim to know you but know that there's sin, Lord, you're calling us to repent, to make ourselves right and holy. You, you, you said in your body here on earth when you, you were here with us then, like that, you, you said... If your eye offends, you pluck it out. Your hand offends, you cut it off. Lord, we, we know you didn't mean literally to do that. But, but you, you meant it, it's better to get rid of the sin than it is to live in it. Because the destruction of the sin is a lot worse than the destruction of the body. And so, Lord, our bodies, we know they're weak. They're going away anyway. 
But you're calling us to deny our bodies for the sake of being right with you. And, and not to deny it the good things, but to, to not allow our own desires to, to draw us into sin. And only you can crucify the old man. We thank you that you said in Colossians 3 that we have, that you are dead. You died with Christ on the cross. And the life we now live in Christ, you said in Galatians, we live by faith in the Son of God. It's not our life anymore. It's your life in us. But Lord, you're going to have to plant these bodies, but one day you're going to raise them up and they will be perfect bodies, not without having the, the, the attachment of sin on them. And we look forward to that day. But in the life we now live right now, Lord, you're calling us to a holy and a pure life. And so, Lord, I pray that we would, we would, we would run to you at any time we realize there's sin there and we would flee to you. Lord, to the lost who may be hearing this message, Lord, I pray that they would turn to you. That they would know that the only place to, to have guilt forgiven is at the cross of Christ. And that your blood washes away all our guilt. And though we know that we're guilty, that we did the thing, the legal penalty of that guilt has been taken by you. And so our feelings of guilt is just an aggravation of, of the enemy. Because we already know we're guilty, but we know that we are forgiven. And so now we have the power and the freedom to do the right thing. So God, give us that grace that we would know that you empower us to look more and more like Jesus every day of our life. And as through our failure, we realize our need of the power of God in our life. And may we turn our failure into fuel to chase you, to know you, to dwell with you, to live in the shadow of your wing and the power of your resurrection. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name for your grace. Amen.